You weren't kidding about old ones, goodness me. Yeah. When I first um, came to faith, it was the late 80s, and that song I can remember going to meetings where that was probably sung 17, 18, 19, 20 times in a row. And we'll sing it one more time because we know there's some people up in the rafters there that should be coming down to the front. Another thing that's from that era is um, the start of this particular program. We could play the clip. sure if you told the kids that that's 33 years old that they would believe you but it is and oddly enough I often think of scriptures when I see that clip particularly the school orchestra it's chaotic it's discordant it's but yet somehow it all kind of loosely hangs together the Bible is messy because it's a human book as well as a divinely inspired book. God's mission is messy. You should have seen the state of this place last night. And in the Bible, there are clashing ideas all over the place, like the the bum notes in an intermediate school orchestra. But there's sort of the underlying tune is still there that God is saving a people to God's self. Give you some examples. Scripture is very clear that predestination, the advance activity of God in saving his people, is real. Yet, on the other hand, it's also very clear on human freedom and responsibility for our choices. These ideas seem contradictory or, at the very least, paradoxical, but they sit next to each other in the Bible. There is no neat or tidy resolution available to reconcile them. Then there is the idea that God will materially bless those who are faithful to him, which pops up here and there throughout the word. But then you have the book of Job, which spectacularly torpedoes it, 
and all the stuff in the New Testament about the benefits of suffering. Then again, in other places, the Bible is keen on women teaching and leading, and in other places, not so much. There are lots of these paradoxes, these, these off notes, if you will. And here's another one. And it's from James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill. And yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be showing you senseless person that faith without works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Now Martin Luther, this chap, it's not the best photo, but you get the idea, he set off the Protestant Reformation of the church in the 1520s, and his big catch cry was, Christian people are saved by grace, not by works, not by their own efforts. And the relationship that he saw between faith and works was aptly summed up by Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He said this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that none of you can boast. When you compare it with verse 24 of what we've just, this slide we've just had up, it seems a contradiction with James. And Luther certainly thought so. See, the medieval Catholic Church had built into its faith the idea that you had to do good works to get yourself into God's good graces to be saved. And there was no, telling, no way of telling how you were doing. And if you, at the end of your life, you still had a bit owing, you had a debit balance, You'd be stuck into purgatory for a round of punishment, a good whipping to purge your soul, before perhaps being admitted to heaven. No assurance of salvation in this scheme or understanding of the faith. Now based on this, they came up with a very clever fundraising plan. If you gave money to the church, say to support the construction of this, St Peter's Basilica in Rome, which took 120 years, to build. Now, as you can see, you'd be selling be a few bake sales to pay for that. They had this idea 
that they would give you what they called an indulgence. It was sort of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It got you some time of purgatory. It's quite corrupt. And Luther quite rightly reacted against it. He thought James, though, was undermining the freedom that he saw in this idea of salvation by grace through faith alone. Now, before we get too sniffy about this, it's worth considering it's not so different from the modern Protestant idea that if I give money to God's work, he'll give me back more. The whole health, wealth, and happiness thing. Also, I've heard people say many times that God has financially looked after me because I've tithed. Well, Luther, again, this chap here, had this to say in his introduction to the New Testament. And this is a paraphrase. John's Gospel, and the first letter of John, Paul's letters, especially those to Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and Peter's first letter, these are the books which show you Christ and teach you everything you need and will be blessed to know, even though you never see or hear anything else. However, James's epistle, that's a right story epistle compared with them, for there is no gospel character to it. He was later quoted as saying we should cut Jimmy out of our Bible and burn it, which I guess makes sense because that's what you do with straw. In his Bible translation, he stuck James in at the very end, along with a couple of other books he wasn't that well impressed with. Okay, consider this scenario. A friend invited me to a Christian meeting, and out of curiosity I went. And I was quite moved by the speaker telling her story and urging me to give my life to Jesus. It all sounded very attractive. When they called us to respond, I went to the front and I prayed along with someone there. It was quite an experience. I felt part of something bigger than myself and in some indescribable way like I was nearer to God, who after all I've always believed in. I shed a few tears. And the people up front, well, they were very kind to me. It was a neat experience. Then the next morning, I woke up and life continued as before. I guess my prayer of commitment didn't really go all that deep. I had a near miss, perhaps, a glancing encounter with what might have been a deeper connection to God. My singular profession of faith that night has not led to anything different in my life. And I think James would say, well, it's dead in the sense that it never really came to life in the first place. A seed was thrown into the ground that is me, but it didn't take root. And I think he'd be right, wouldn't he? Yes, I believe in God, but so too does every spirit, evil spirit that has ever existed, and they shudder at the sound of his name. Whereas I continue to live my life just as I have always done, so their response is more long-lasting and more self-defining than mine. Faith, saving faith, 
is far more than my intellectual assent that God is real or that Jesus rose from the dead to save us all. I don't know about you, but I've met plenty of people that believe those things. But it doesn't necessarily make any difference to how they live. Faith is more than just a prayer. What we truly believe, deep down in here, is shown by how we live over time, over the longer term, the things we do. And what I think James is saying here is that a workless faith, a faith without positive consequences in our lives, is not a true saving faith at all. If my faith hasn't changed me, then what really happened? Probably not much. Paul's oft-quoted passage in Ephesians 2 usually stops at verse 9 in the Scripture Union posters that feature it. But see how it reads if you go all the way through to verse 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not your own doing, gift, results of works, no one can boast. For we are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And when I look at this, I don't see Paul and James really being in conflict. They are just different vistas of the same mountain. Now James then gives us a couple of examples to further try and explain his point. So picking up the one about Abraham. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And in verse 6 it says that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited that to him as righteousness. Which is sort of like an Old Testament version, I think, of saving faith. Subsequently, Abraham and Sarai had a son in their old age. And as the boy was growing, the Lord came to Abram again and told him, Go outside into the wilderness, build a pyre, you know, a pile of wood, and there sacrifice your son to me. If a son died in this way, how then would God's promise be fulfilled? Well, Abraham didn't know. Yet in Genesis 22, he goes right up to the point of killing his son. He's got the knife up like this before he's stopped by an angel of the Lord. Abraham's belief in God's promise, was not just skin deep or superficial. It went right to the core of his being such that he was prepared to give up his son. This story always makes me shudder when I read it or tell it. But I wonder if it's a bit of a hint about how God the Father felt 
watching his son Jesus on the cross that day. Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. And his deep faith was demonstrated by what he was prepared to do. Well, James also refers to Rahab, whose features early in the book of Joshua as a Canaanite person and the, the, God was leading the Jewish nation out of Egypt and into Canaan. They were invading the place and she recognised the reality of what was happening. God was moving against her people in favour of his people, the Jews. And so she helped two Jewish spies who had been sent to reconnoitre Jericho. And she said this to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan. Whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it our hearts failed. And there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then I have dealt kindly with you. Swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men, the spies, said to her, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, about us being here, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. She concealed these Jewish spies great story this. Jericho was conquered and as promised her family was spared and became part of God's people. She herself is in the lineage of Jesus. She became one of his ancestors. Her belief in the God of Israel translated into some very risky actions because if a king of Jericho knew what she was doing she would have been executed. Well Jesus himself has a similar take to James. He often talked about good trees showing their goodness by the fruit that they produced. And one example is this from Luke. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Repentance, godly repentance, changes us. It's not a glib or a light, oh I'm sorry. It's a bone deep change in our attitude and the trajectory of our lives. It will affect what we do, what we are like and what we become. That is what God is looking for in us. Now, it might not happen at one particular point in time. It did for me, but not for plenty of other people. It might grow, but it still will happen. There will be positive fruit in the life, life of someone who has experienced true saving faith. There must be. Paul summed things up rather well again in Galatians 5, 6. He said that in Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
our hearts and our head are not separated from our hands and our feet. Faith needs actions to express itself and to show its true character and power. Likewise, Christian service needs a proclaimed faith to show its true motivation and to give glory to God. This week, can I urge you to be alert to the God that the good that God would have you do here at church, in your workplace, in your school, in your family, in your wider family, in your friendship groups. He is always a step ahead of us, preparing the way with opportunities to bless others. An old mentor of mine described the, the Christian life like a bird whose wings were faith and love. You need both to fly. How could it be otherwise? Can I urge you this week, go fly. Musicians, you're on. <laughs>